All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, we, we, it's crazy to be at this spot in, in 2 Peter for, for a few reasons. I mean, we've gone through this whole letter. We've gone through 1 Peter with it. Uh, and, and just in this letter, Peter has laid out for them, just sort of as a reminder, he's laid out for them the, the, the great grace of God in the gospel. That's sort of how he began it, these great gifts uh, of the Lord. And then he's reminded them of, of what God uh, has done and, and is, is promising to do and how they're supposed to respond to that with lives of, of holiness and, and godwardness, uh, spotless, without blemish. But how do you end that? How do you end this letter? And, and I think it's interesting. The, the conclusion of letters is always so interesting. I, for one, never know how to end any sort of correspondence with anyone, be it an email, sometimes even getting off the phone. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, when it, uh, how, do you, how do you end a letter? Like, we still struggle with this. What do you say at the end? Do you say, sincerely? which oddly seems like the least sincere thing to say. Uh, do you say, uh, you know, I love you, you know, love whomever? Do you say, you know, how do you, do you get like super theological and in like everything with like soli deo gloria, uh, Chris? And people are like, I don't even know what that means. Uh, I didn't know he was bilingual. Uh, I mean, so, so how do you end these sorts of, of things? Do you end it with, in your name I pray, you know, and then, and then uh, finish it up? Well, that's the question. What is God? What is God going to inspire Peter to say as his final word to these churches that we now have two letters that he's written to? Churches that remember the, their historical context. I mean, they, they are dispersed from their Jewish homeland. They are being written to by a man who has told them that he is about to die. And he's told them that the day of the Lord is coming and coming soon. Part of that day will indeed sweep down on Jerusalem in AD 70. And they'll be sitting there dispersed, which was being in exile, which was at one time a curse. And in AD 70 will be very much a blessing. But that's what we have. These are Peter's. The Peter's final recorded words in human history that we can be certain that he has said. What is God going to have that man say to end everything about him and what he said? Let's stand in the honor of reading God's word and we'll see. Let's look at verse 18 of 2 Peter chapter 3. And just so you know where we're going to be going for the next few weeks, we'll look uh, at, at glory and glorifying the Lord uh, to, today and probably next week. Then we'll spend a few weeks looking at how you give glory to Christ or what is so glorious about Christ. We'll get the glories of Christ. Uh, and then that'll, that'll probably, I think it's like four weeks, maybe five, maybe seven. Uh, and then we'll end it with a look at the life of, of Peter. Uh, sort of as a summation that here we've walked through his, his letters in life. So just so you know where we're going to be, where we're going to be going. Uh, but look at, look at verse 18 and sort of as we're ending this, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then here is that ending to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father, we come to you and we give glory to you and glory to your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so, Father, I pray today that you will have been worshipped, that you will be glorified, that we will lift you up and make much of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so look at that. Look at that last sentence. That's where we're at now. Um, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So that's how, that's Peter's final word, final resting words of, of Peter. May all glory be given to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I got to say, like if you're writing out your life and you're like, what's, what is the last things that I want people to know that I have indeed said? That's a, that's a pretty good stamp to sum up what our lives are supposed to have been proclaiming all along. I mean, Peter's just saying in this final note, what we're going to see, really all of our lives are supposed to be proclaiming every day. It should be something that we don't have to pen down. It should be something that we don't have to uh, attach to the end of our life. Like as I die, oh, by the way, glory be to Christ. uh, And then dying, well, he said it at the end. You know, he didn't live it, but he said it right there at the end. And so it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, all of our life is supposed to be summed up in this call of giving glory both now and to the day of eternity to Christ. And if you take, if you take, I mean, think about taking all of what we know about Peter and wrapping him up in these words, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I said oftentimes because the end of letters uh, is, is so difficult for us to figure out what to do. And because we know we add things at the end of letters that, that really are just sort of there at like, at, like, at, like as protocol. Like I got to say something. I can't just write, you know, the letter and then go the uh, Chris uh, and end it. I've got to have some sort of note, some sort of final thing that sometimes I think we take that idea that the last parts of these letters are just sort of throwaway verses or throwaway ideas. And we think that the meat of the letter happens all before these things. But you've got to remember, there is no word that God places in the pages of scripture that is meaningless. There is no throwaway word in any part of of scripture like second timothy says all scripture is breathed out right and is profitable all of it's breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for proof for correcting for training in righteousness all of it every single word he doesn't say most of it he doesn't say the really good parts he says all of scripture this is why when we get to a sentence like this at the end i mean take out the fact the, just the stunning fact that it's Peter's last words and just just looking at every sentence. This is why we come to this and we can't see this as just sort of a throwaway goodbye. The, the God of the universe, the, the one true God who made you and I, our heavenly father moved Peter to scribe these exact words at the end of the letter. These 
words. Inspiration did not stop. And then Peter get to add what he wanted to add at the end. These are the words of our God. And you can think Peter, who knows that he's about to die, who might know that these are going to be the last words that he pens, the scribble, the, I can imagine, one, the shaking of your hand just to begin with, uh, as you're penning these words as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you know, you've written to these churches before and you know you're about to die and how your hand would be moving across that that precious sheet of paper and what does what is the epitaph that God by his grace has has given to the end of Peter's life these words and so these words have weight simply because they are the words of God They have a a great gravity behind them because they are the words of this man that we've known since the first pages of the Gospels. I mean, we've seen him in the Gospels. We've followed him in Acts. And now here we are, we get the end of his life and here it is. And what does he call us to do? What does he cry out to us from the pages of Scripture? What, What would that that irascible Peter say to us, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what does Peter want us to do? What does he cry? He says, give glory to Jesus Christ. Do it right now and do it always. What does Peter tell you? Give glory to to him is clear. You look back to the the previous verse. He's obviously talking about Jesus here. He says that we are supposed to give glory to Jesus. We're supposed to do it right now. And we're supposed to keep doing it to the day of eternity. In fact, it's what we'll do throughout eternity. We're supposed to give Jesus glory. Now, I have always thought that the word glory is an interesting word because of this. What does it mean? It's interesting because we know things like the chief end of man is to glorify God. And if I go, well, what is glory and how do you glorify someone? You'll get all sorts of various answers as to how you do it. Think about that. We say the chief end of our life. What is your purpose in life? To glorify God. What is that? Well, uh, glory means and if i asked all of us if i asked you know 40 different people i'd get 50 different answers because one of you part of you would go halfway and go no no wait maybe, maybe it doesn't mean that maybe it means something else so we know the importance of glorifying god we prayed today god may you be glorified what does that even mean what does what is glory and how does one give it to somebody Because Peter's coming here and he's telling us to give glory to Christ. But what is that? Normally when we answer it's something vacuous or ethereal, right? Just sort of a sort of a misty thought. It's to and it just kind of, you know, to be whatever. So let's look at what glory is in the Bible. How about we do that? How about we go to the Bible and see some examples of when the Bible talks about what glory is that may help us understand when we say things like, what are your, what's your, you know, we even mentioned it, soli deo gloria, only give glory to God. Well, what does it mean to give glory to him? 
What does it mean if your chief end is to glorify God? If Peter says here, give glory to Christ, what does that mean? First, let's look at what is glory. And the idea of glory, the word glory has a full and rich biblical background. And I am not even going to touch on all the verses that talk about this word, this idea of glory. Over 200 in the Old Testament, a few hundred in the New Testament. So as much as I wanted to, we're not going to look at all of them. Uh, because it is, it is rich and, and you don't have to look at all of them to know what this glory is, the, the basic idea or meaning behind when it tells us that we are to give glory or to glorify something. First, let's look at the word used here in Second Peter. Peter is, of course, as we know, by the sovereign grace of God, writing the New Testament letter here in, in Greek. Uh, and the Greek word for glory here is a word that comes from the word, uh, it's the word doxa, where we get the word like the doxology. We just sang praise God. Well, we didn't sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, but we, we sang the, tomb to, the tune to it, the old hundredth. Uh, but if you hear like the doxology, the, 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 the doxology means words of glory. Doxa meaning glory. It's that, that same Greek word is then moved into the Old Testament in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Where uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where, wherever you have the word glory in the Hebrew, they would most of the time translate it here with this word doxa, which means comes from the verb that means to seem or to think about in, in a high fashion. In other words, to think highly of someone, to, to value something. So when Peter is talking about giving glories, the, the, just the simple Greek word behind it is the idea of, of having, seeing something as extremely valuable. To think high, great, majestic thoughts about something. But Peter's not just coming up with a new idea when he talks about glory. Like I said, the word glory comes from a, a rich biblical background. It, it, it fills the pages, not just of the New Testament, but of the Old Testament. So when he's writing to these Jews and he uses this word, give glory to Christ, they've got a whole Old Testament filled with passages talking about giving glory, normally glory to the Lord. So what would they think of these Hebrews, these Jews, when they hear things like give glory to God? Well, the, the, the Old Testament word for glory, the Hebrew word for glory, comes from a word that means that something is heavy or weighty. You know, that we would say that something is significant, that something is, it has magnitude to it. So you could say that your eyes became heavy and you fell asleep. It would be the same word. Uh, a, so that would be, be, be an interesting way if your wife ever asked you, how do I look in this dress? You could say, glorious. Uh, and you get out, you get out, you can be honest and, and get away uh, with whatever. But the word means that something is weighty, that it is heavy, that it is significant, it can mean that something has honor. It can also mean literal weightiness, like the weightiness of someone's treasure. Their glorious treasure means that they, it's actually a pretty heavy amount of treasure. So to have glory is no small thing. So you put these two ideas together. Uh, glory is to declare 
some things high value and honor. The high value being the idea from the Greek, the, the honor being the idea from the, from the Hebrew. It's to say that this thing that I'm giving glory to, this is no mere bobble. This is a, a weighty thing. It is to say that something is the, the sort of the greatest of the great. It is to lift it high above any other competitor. So to glorify something is to say that something possesses that sort of glory, that this thing is the greatest and needs to be recognized as the greatest. There's nothing like this thing. It is weighty. It is heavy. It is significant. It is honorable. There is value and praise in this. That's how you glory. That's what glory is. And that's how you give it to something. Now, we know in the Bible, there are examples of of doing this just in a general sense. So, like, for example, in Psalm 45, verse 13, uh, a woman's beauty could be glorious. He says, all glorious is the princess in her chamber. Joseph is said to be glorious because of the honor that he had under Pharaoh in, in Egypt, that he had glory in Egypt. So, Genesis 45, verse 13 You must tell my father of all my honor, that's the same word for glory, all my glory in Egypt and of all that you've seen, hurry and bring my father down here. But we know, yes, glory can be applied to anything. You can give glory to your children. You can say that your wife looks glorious and it's not a sin. You're not robbing from God. Uh, If you do that, uh, you can say other things are glorious, weighty. The scripture does so. But when we think of glory, there is one whose glory is above all others. And the one we think of when we think of words like glory and glorification is, of course, God. And so if you look back at that definition again, glory is to declare something's high value and its honor to glorify God is to then declare that to be true about God above all other things. Now we know, we know, we mentioned, we know that this is chiefly the job of the people of God to give this glory to God. That most of the times when the Old Testament is talking about glory, when the New Testament is talking about glory, it's not talking about how glorious the princess is. It's not talking about the honor given to, to Joseph. It's talking about give glory to God, that God is glorious and you would be a fool to not recognize that glory. That we, as God's people, above all others, our job is to proclaim that. That our God is the greatest of the great. That he stands out amongst everything else in creation. And it is that type of glory that Peter is now saying the people are to give to Christ. He's saying all the things that you read in the Old Testament about how glorious God is. All of those, I want you to take those and realize, give those to Christ and give it to him now and give it to him to the day of eternity. So what did, if that's what glory means, what did Peter expect him to think when he tells them to give that glory given to God and to give it to Christ? How do you do that? How is giving glory described in the Bible. How does the Bible tell us we give glory 
to God. And interesting, the Bible actually does describe to us how we do that. If we look at how people gave glory to God, that can perhaps give us an insight into how we give glory to Christ. And I think that'll be helpful. So as we go, we're going to move now and look at a a few passages uh, and see when the Bible tells us not just that we should glorify God, but when it tells us how to glorify God and why to glorify him, that can be helpful to us on two fronts. One, so that we know what Peter is calling us to do. Right? Peter's calling these Jews, do this that you've read about in your scriptures and give it to Jesus. It's going to be useful for us because when it says give glory to Jesus, you just can't make up how to do that. Well, you just can't decide, well, I'll glorify him how. I'm going to glorify him by building the nicest house I can imagine. Oh, the, you think that's crazy. There's some pretty big churches that tried to say that's how they were glorifying the Lord, right? We'll make it, we'll make it as big and amazing as we can. Uh, that's how you glorify him. You don't get, we don't get to choose how to do that. The Lord of glory also tells us how to glorify him. Let's look at how does one glorify a glorious God, okay? So if that's the idea of glory, something that has high value and honor, something above all else, how do you take that recognition and give that glory to someone like God? God, who is already glorious, right? We're not going to, and that's important to recognize when we say give God glory, it's not like he doesn't have it as much as it is recognized that it's there. Uh, you're not, you're not, you're not boosting God's self-esteem here. It's not that God is like, I really, I really don't feel good about myself. Uh, and so we're like, no, God, you're awesome. And he's like, yay, thanks. I feel better. No more flood. Uh, that's not, that's not what, that's not what he's talking about. This is just recognizing the glory that's already there. How do you glorify an already glorious God? Great place to start is the Psalms. Uh, if you if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 96. And we'll begin at verse 7 and we'll read through verse 9. Really, you could, we'll end up looking at also verses 1 through 6, but this makes you think we'll just be in two verses or three verses. Look at what it says there. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord, Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So in this song of praise, we get a section here that focuses on glory, on giving God glory and why and how we do that, at least biblically. Again, this is not saying this is the only way that something is glorified, but this is how God does tell his people, this is why you glorify me and this is how you glorify me. So if we're going to glorify God, Pretty good place to start. And if you want to see that this section, uh, it's like, why choose this one? This section above all is pretty important because these verses about why and how to glorify God are going to be repeated almost verbatim a few times in Scripture. So look, for example, Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Compare what you just read to this. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. How about 1 Corinthians 16, 28 and 29, when the people are coming back into the land, back to the task of being God's people in the promised land. What does it say to do? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So when it comes to glorifying God and how one does that, it seems like God is making a point about how he wants us to do it. Because he tells us, and then he's like, okay, I'm going to tell you again. Uh, and then he's like, and, and now I'm going to remind you when you come back into the land. Now, okay, what's your job? We're back here and we're going to glorify God. Okay, let me remind you how to do that. Okay, you remind you what the Psalms say, Psalm of David. There are a few things that we can see from this passage in Psalm 96 and, and from these others about what glory is and, and how someone is glorified, particularly how God is glorified in, in these passages. So as we're looking at this about God and his glory, what can we learn about how we glorify God? The first thing we can see is glorifying God is a worldwide call. It is for everyone. Glorifying God is the task of everyone. How does it start out? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now we know that God saved his people for his glory. That when people ask, you know, why did God, why did God save? You know, you say things like, because he loved this much or because he, you know, uh, because, well, he gave us this thing called free will. And then there's, uh, if you want to know what God says as to why he saved, here's his answer. Him and Hob mix up all these words and ideas. God tells us why he saved. It was pretty clearly for his glory. Why did God save people? He saved us for his glory. Now that doesn't, that we sometimes don't like that because it doesn't seem like it's very much focused on us. Yeah, it's not. Uh, <laughs> it's not focused on you. So, but look, he says it. God says it. So we might as well believe that's why he did it. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 7. Here he's describing his people Israel. He said, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, sometimes we like to take this passage and apply it to creation of every human being. It's not really the context of Isaiah 43. He's talking about the formation of the people of Israel, uh, his people through that. Uh, and why did he create them? Why did he form them and make them? He created them for his glory. So now down in verse 20 and 21 of Isaiah 43, what does he say? My chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So you and I have been saved for this singular purpose to give glory to God. That, that is our chief end. That's why we're here. This is why it's so important for us to know what is glory and how do you glorify God? Because God says, this is why you've been saved. When you sit there and you go, but the song I was just singing, you know, who am I? Or when we ask questions like, why me? Why'd you save me, God? Here it is, that you might glorify me. What is my purpose in life? Here it is, that you might glorify me. 
But we see here in the psalm that it's not just Christians who are called to glorify the Lord, but all the peoples of the earth are called to give glory to God. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. The Westminster Shorter was right. That the chief end of all men, not just the chief end of Christians, the chief end of all men is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glory is something that the whole world should be doing. That's why when you look back at Psalm 96 and you look at verse 3, what does it tell the people that they're supposed to do? Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. And then it comes down and says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. So in verse 3, the people of God, who are the ones created for God's glory, take that glory, declare it to the world. And then in verse 7, God comes and says, all right, world, give to me the glory that you just heard about. Ascribe that glory to me. Now, this is, this is uh, glorifying God is evangelistic. We are to be taking the great works of God and proclaiming his glory to the world. Talking about God's glory is evangelistic. That's that's what's going on here. This is evangelism here. Take the glory of God, the great things that he has done, and declare it to the nations. This This is the biblical backbone for something like the Great Commission. The Great Commission was not something new that Jesus sort of came up with. It's what God's people were already supposed to be doing. Now it's just applied to Christ. The Lord, all authority in heaven and earth already belonged to God. They were supposed to go and already be proclaiming that to the nations. Now Jesus says, that's been given to me in the same way Peter says, the glory you gave to God, you now give to Christ. The Great Commission is not something new. It's what God's people were always supposed to be doing. I mean, now it becomes a flood. And after Pentecost, the world, you know, we get this reversal of the Tower of Babylon. As God flings about his people, the gospel spreads, kingdom grows. Glorifying God isn't just a worldwide call, though. It is also the call for the world. In this sense, it is the goal that God is calling creation itself to. So in scripture, you get these prayers like in Psalm 72, verse 19. It says, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And then what does it double up? Amen. Amen and amen. This, this prayer, this, we know that, that, that we're supposed to glorify God. And there's this prayer that eventually the whole earth will be filled with his glory. The nations coming and praising him and, and creation will glorify the Lord. I mean, that's a promise that doesn't come from the book of Revelation. That's a promise that goes all the way back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 14, verse 21 This is a promise of God. Listen to what God swears to his people. But as truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. All the way back, all the way back in the law. I mean, this is the, you go back, I mean, well, this is just a few pages back here. Just a few pages. And God, God is staking his very existence on that promise. He says, God says, as surely as I live, this will happen. If I am the one true God, if I am the living word, if I am the living God, this won't just be a promise. This will be a reality. And so that's why you get prayers like we saw in Psalm 72. So that's why when the Bible describes the ultimate outcome for creation, as as Peter called it, the new heavens and the new earth, it is a place perfected because it is filled with God's glory. So you get passages like Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. You get, you get Isaiah eleven nine. 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. You know, it's interesting in all those verses back to Numbers and then back to Habakkuk and back in Isaiah. In all of these, the glory of God is what stands against the problem of sin and the fall. In Numbers, it was, it was right after Moses had, the people rebelled and Moses had to intercede for the people. Right, this rebellious people, then God says, Look, one day, like this is going to be the answer to the problem of this rebellious people. One day, my glory will cover the earth. One day, all of the earth will be filled with my glory. And that's the same in Habakkuk, the same thing. It's, it's a promise that instead of sin, which it has been filling his nation and the earth. Instead of sin, the world will one day be filled with his glory. The same thing in in Isaiah, the problem of the fall, no more biting of asps and no more fearing being devoured by lions. All of those problems of the fall are going to be gone. Why? Because it'll be filled with my glory. This is one of the reasons that it is your job to proclaim the glory of Christ in the world this is part of the new creation that we live in and yet are waiting for so remember this the next time that that you struggle with sin remember a great solution to the struggle of sin is the glory of god the glory of god drives back sin in our hearts and in creation itself so this is a worldwide call all of the world is supposed to give glory to god it's what they were created to do it's what they will all one day do god promises that will happen as surely he says as he lives but that's not all the second thing we see is that god's glory comes from praising god for who he is and what he has done. So in verse 7, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. But verse 7 is a response to guess which verses? 1 through 6, right? 
that in verses 1 through 6, it, it, it has been listing out all of the reasons that we will give glory to God. And we see in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 96. So flip back to Psalm 96. Look at this one again. You see in these first six verses, all that God has praised for. He's praised for who he is. He's praised for what he has done. So so look at how God is glorified in this psalm. That Then he says, all right, take what you've just read and now describe that glory to the Lord. Beginning in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Why? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So God, it says, God deserves glory, deserves glory as our Savior. Tell of his salvation. In fact, it says God deserves glory for all of his marvelous works in verse Verse 3, that he deserves praise, he deserves fear and reverence, that the, the gods that the nations worship are, are just worthless idols. And we'll talk about what that word means next week. Uh, they are worthless idols, but not our God. He is not a worthless idol. He made the heavens. But it's not just his actions. Who God is, is also praiseworthy in those verses. Look, it says he is robed in splendor and majesty. That his sanctuary, his his holy place is filled with strength, but also with what? With beauty. It 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 is truly a great and awful place in the old sense of the Word awful, full of awe. So when we glorify God, when in response to those first six verses, what we see is when we glorify God, we are praising God for who he is and for what he has done. So when you want to know, how do I give glory to God? You have to proclaim, you are proclaiming. You are not just making up things about God. That's not your job. It is not your job. When we say glorify God, you don't just think the neatest thing you could think about something and give it to God. God has already got all of these attributes for you to know. All of these things that he has done. You don't have to go, God, give me a reason to glorify you. That's just like saying, God, I'm too lazy to get in my Bible. Because the pages of scripture are filled with the things from verses one through six. Filled with reasons. Like if if you read scripture and you believed what scripture said, you would not walk away from the Bible thinking, he's not that glorious. You would see, oh my goodness, is this who God is? And then go, and that's, that's who saved me? That's who, that's who delivered me? That's who created all of this? And you would say he, he is robed in splendor and majesty. Oh, and his holiness, his holiness is, he's holy and he's, he's so strong and mighty. And yet at the same time, so incredibly beautiful. You would be awe struck 
you would give him glory for be God. If that's who you are, truly, there is no one like you. Your value, your honor is above anything else in all of creation. And you go, of course, because you created creation. So when we go, what does it mean to glorify God? It is to proclaim who God is. It is to praise what he has done. So when you, when you think your job, my job is to glorify God, that's what you do. Exclaim, this is who God is. He is amazing. These are the amazing things that he has done. That is to glorify him. But there are other things we see in this list as, as well. Again, just even in verse 7, the, the, the other thing we see is that glory is a response to God's great strength, to his, to his power. That glory, give it you, we often glorify God when we see his immense power. So it says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Uh, glory and strength. You, 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 see, you see those two things. It's almost as if the two are distinct, but they, they are not separated. In fact, in the very next verse, he says, ascribe, ascribe to the Lord glory. I think what he's teaching, uh, what the Lord's teaching is there is that glory and strength are tied together. One aspect of God's glory is his great power, his power that he uses to create, to sustain the earth, and that he then continues to put to work in the earth to fight sin and to save his people. I mean, look, there's a, there's a reason that we like stories about slaying dragons and saving brides because that's been God's glorious story from the beginning. The crushing of the serpent and the saving of the woman has been this. There's no, there's no wonder that you go from culture to culture to culture. And what do people have? Slaying serpents and rescuing women. Why? Because that's just a small metaphor for what God's been doing this whole time. So look, for example, look back at, look back at one of the Psalms we mentioned earlier, Psalm 29. As we see the great strength of God at work in this world to slay wickedness and to redeem his people. So beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 29, Pay attention to it there because I couldn't get it all on one slide on the screen. And then we're going to walk through it a little bit. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So notice this time it is the, the heavenly beings that are called to give glory to God. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And his, in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. 
May the Lord bless his people with peace. So look at how this psalm of glory, which is interesting, again, because it's not given to the people. This is what heaven is proclaiming, focuses on his great power and the immense power found very intentionally where? Just in his voice. He's trying to show like the, the gods of the nations, they might be powerful because they've got chariots and they've got this or that. What does the Lord have with filled with such immense power? His voice. Look at what his voice does. It's a, it's a voice that thunders, it says. It is, it is powerful and, and full of majesty. It's got the strength to break the strongest of trees, even the cedars of, he says, so he says that it's, it's going to break the cedars. He says, yeah, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And you're like, Lebanon? That's right. Even Lebanon, like, like it just rips, like it just rips through them with his voice. And, and it doesn't just break the strongest of trees. It's not just the cedars of Lebanon that are broken. It breaks the mightiest of nations. Lebanon itself goes what? Goes fleeing, fleeing like, uh, like, a, like a calf running. And that word skip there doesn't mean like Lebanon's like, wee. Uh, although it might have a double metaphor that one day they will go, wee, uh, in a good way. But this one is like, let's get out of here. Like, I'm just a calf. I'm running away. I'm not standing to fight this. Why? Did you see what it did to the cedar? What cedar? A cedar of Lebanon. Uh, and so Lebanon is even the mightiest of nations are fleeing before this. The, 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 it's such a shocking voice filled with such power that what does it cause the deer to do? Give birth. That's not saying that God is watching over the deer and even causes them to give birth in the field. It's saying when the voice of the Lord comes, the deer go, oh no, Bloop. baby. It is such a shocking voice that deer give birth and the forest is stripped bare by its power. But look at what it says at the end of verse 9. How do the people respond to that voice? What is the cry from his temple? Simply one word. Glory. Glory. And when we see the the power of God held simply in his voice, that the nations that we shake at, God speaks and they flee. The forests are laid bare. We see that strength of God, that power, that might. And we have one word escape our lips. Glory. And I think it's because we couldn't get anything else out but that. Right? But that is the focus of what, when you see all of that, you look and you say, glory. And then look, God sits then, he says, enthroned over the flood. I mean, the the mightiest act in all of creation against his enemies. So God is not embarrassed by the flood. He sits enthroned over the flood. This is what I do to the enemies of my people, to the enemies of me. So he sits enthroned over against the enemies and enthroned for the good of his people in verse 11. Using his strength on their behalf to 
bring them peace? Why did God, why did God's voice cause these nations to flee and strip bare and cause creation to shake and tremble so that his people could have peace? So part of our glorification of of God is a recognition and praise of that immense power, power that the king works against his enemies and for our good. So praising God is indeed praising him for slaying dragons and saving princesses and doing it with his mere voice, setting us up for a God who can do this simply by his word. Now we'll stop there. There is more that we're going to see next week. And then we'll look at all the glories of Christ tied to the titles that Peter gives. Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll look at how every one of those you could fill page after page with the glory just bound up in each of those words. But let's stop with here having looked at a passage that the Lord repeats several times in terms of giving him glory. Uh, let's, let's chew on this and then we'll, we'll finish actually looking at this uh, next week with some more Uh, in how do we bring glory to a glorious God. The first thing I want us to remember as we we take home and think, what can I I apply from this, is remember that you've got one purpose in life. One purpose. You are created for just as a being and that you were saved for. Your job is to give glory to God and then to go to those people who are not giving glory to God and say, hey, this is how glorious God is. You should give him glory. Why? Because you don't want to be on the wrong side of the voice. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the word. Because it either strips bare, it either slays, or it saves. So to declare that, that's your job. And, and, and understand, you cannot have a life that is glorifying God and not be evangelistic. You cannot have a life that you say, my job in this life is to bring glory to God and sit next to a neighbor that will not glorify him and say nothing of God's glory to that place and that home because those people belong to God. That land is his. It is your job to go and proclaim that you're on God's earth. He's proven himself. You can see it. It's around you. He's done it in me. I can show you in his word. If you are really living for the glory of God, you cannot do that silently. You cannot, because in describing the glory of God here, he tells them, this is my glory, ascribe to glory, and then you go and you declare my glory to the nations. Now, I want to live for God's glory, but a God who is glorious is a God you must talk about, that you cannot help but talk about, that when you see it, you cannot shut your lips to keep the word glory from coming out. It is our job to glorify God. And that is not just something you do alone in your little house, in your little part of the woods. If you want to glorify God, you proclaim it everywhere in all circumstances, in all situations. It is how you do everything. It is why you do everything. You will be evangelistic. This is not saying that if you want to glorify God, you, you, get, you do this door-to-door evangelism or anything like that. It's saying you do that and you do more than that. That's just the 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 pinpoint of the, the of the goal because if you're glorifying God it will it will cover everything that you do it will define how you go to the grocery store it'll define how you interact with people on the phone it will it will define how you are at work it will define how you are at the thanksgiving table 
Because your purpose in all of those situations is singular. Not to have, oh man, I really want to make sure, guys, when we get there, you act like this and you act like that because you're not going to embarrass me. Right? And it's not, well, she talked to me like this at the store and there's no one that talks to me like that. So you look at him and you just say, get, you know, it will, it will, it will define how you interact in all of those situations. Because when the situation comes up, you'll go, oh no, what do I do? And you'll go, I know what I'm supposed to do. Glorify the Lord. Make sure that my actions show the glory and wonder of who God is and how his people are different from the people who have given their lives to worthless idols. Could you say that that has been the purpose of your life? I'm not, look, look, I'm not saying make that the purpose of your life. I'm not. I don't want you to make that the purpose of your life. I'm just telling you that already is the purpose of your life. You're either ignoring your purpose or you're living your purpose. You don't need to figure out the purpose for your life. God has told you it. You're either honoring him as king And saying, all right, you have given me this purpose. I will live that. Or you're pretending to do that. Pretending to want. I just wish I knew how I was supposed to live. He has told you, oh man, what is good for you. And here it is what? Glorify the Lord your God. That's what you're here to do. So then if you're going to do that, what did it say? What is the fuel to glory is a God who is glorious. If you have trouble living for God's glory and not your own, if you have trouble doing something as simple as as worshiping the Lord and you, you have trouble getting motivated to come and sing his praises like they did in verses one through six. You have, you have trouble going, oh, I don't want to get up. We're just going to sing to the God of the universe. Then we're going to read the words of the God who made me. And then we've got to sit and eat lunch from food that he provided us from his good kindness. But then I'll be sleepy. I mean, if you, get, if you have trouble thinking about those things and seeing how amazing it is that you get to do that with other people whom God has formed you with to be a body, If you can come up with any excuse to not do those things, then your God is not glorious. Not glorious enough. Because a glorious God is a God that you will bow low to, that you will humble yourself before, and that you will not have to be motivated to come and give him that glory because he is that Wonderful. I guarantee you, there's a reason that I didn't talk to anybody today about OU football. Because it is not glorious. LSU wins one game. One game. 500. But you know what? We often talk about, man, I wish we talked about God more. I wish we talked about the Bible more. Some of that is learning and growing. But you know what? The more you're reading and learning about God and thinking about how glorious God is, it won't be hard to talk about him. It won't be. You got to be careful, right? You don't want to be the person who's just talking about God to show people how much you like to talk about God. But you also don't want to be the person who wants to say something about him, but doesn't. Or can't think of a reason to. If your God is glorious, when God is big, 
we've got no, re- no, no struggle to give him glory. There's not. And so if your God is not glorious enough, do what the Bible suggested that you do. What did, what did that, the, the Psalm, or Psalm 29 uh, do and Psalm 96 do? They talked about all the things that God had done. Psalm 96, 1 through 6, Psalm 29, 1 through 11. All these great things that God has done. You know those things, God will be glorious. One thing that I think is, is practically useful is, did you notice the value of glory in the fight against sin? That God said, look, here's the problem of sin, but that will be taken care of. Why? Because my glory will cover the earth. So let me encourage you, let the glory of God cover your heart like waters cover the sea and it will drown like a flood that which is earthly in you. If you, you know what helps in the fight against sin, you want to say, how can I deal with this sin? Make sure that God is as glorious in your mind as he can be. Fill your mind up with the glory of God and it will drown sin in your heart. There will not be space. There will be no foot for it to, to take hold. No foothold for it. No ledge for it to grasp on. The glory of God is what always defeats sin in us And in creation. And then the last thing. Is that God's glory is seen in his strength. Specifically the strength of his word. And it's true. We have no greater picture. I mean you want to take Psalm 29. You want to make Psalm 29 look like nothing. We have no greater picture of the magnitude and power of the voice of God and his word than in the life of Jesus Christ. If there's anything that could dwarf such a magnificent passage like Psalm 29 is when you realize that Psalm 29 is a shadow of the word becoming flesh i mean that's scary right the word does this now imagine if that voice was enfleshed in christ the head of the dragon is crushed his body is thrown into the lake of fire and by his voice his bride is called and redeemed washed sanctified reborn loved saved by the word, by the voice. What a glorious God. What a wonderful Savior. And it's all real. Our cry, the same as those in Psalm 29, is simple. Glory, glory. And we're to take all of that and give it not just to the Father, but to the Son. Jesus is worthy of all that praise. God, who will not give his glory to another, as we'll see next week, who will not allow some worthless idol to steal his worth, that God is the one who demands us. That God who says, give my, don't give my glory to anybody else, that God comes and demands that we give his glory to Christ, to Jesus. And with that, then tells Peter, to pin his last words with this call. Glory be to Christ.
Let's pray. God, you are glorious. The whole earth is filled with your glory, and we long for that earth to be inundated and flooded with your glory like waters cover the sea. We are thankful for the promise of glory, and yet, God, at the same time, we pray that we would be a people who glorify you, that we would be a people who see how glorious you are, And then in glorifying, you are just recognizing who you are already. We are not having to prop you up. We are not having to make you something that you are not. That's what the people have to do with their idols. You are real. And you have already worked a great work upon which we stand. That you made all of this. And then we're living an even greater work as you have not just created us, but then made us new creations. Through the power and majesty of your voice as you are robed in majesty and glory. Filled with strength and beauty. And as your people, God, we cry out one thing. Glory. Glory. May we be so amazed by your glory, Father, that we cannot help but be mute except for that one word. And that we cannot help but obey such a glorious God to proclaim his glory to that which is earthly in us, putting it to death. And then proclaiming that glory in all your creation, to all the families of all peoples. See who our God is. See what he has done. Look upon Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the flesh. We thank you, Father. All glory truly be to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.